And let me say a prayer for us and we'll kind of jump right into the lesson. This is a fascinating lesson. Lord, thank you so much for the rain that we have. Seriously, you've blessed us in uh, this part of the country with rain that we desperately need and you've certainly done it in abundance. Lord, we thank you that we have the freedom to gather. We have the freedom still to speak your word. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds as we study together in Christ's name, amen. Well, we are working through the book of Romans, and as I always show you there, the number to text your questions to, it's also on your handout. So we are talking about the book of Romans. Romans is, we call it a book, but it's really a letter. It's a long letter, and I thought we would go back and uh, remind you where and when we are. So Paul is in Corinth, so I'm underlining that on the map, that says Achaia, that's Greece, uh, modern-day Greece. He's in Corinth, a large city at the time. He's heard about a congregation in Rome, and so he can't get there yet, so he writes a long letter to this congregation of believers in Rome, and he, and he writes a letter, and it's really interesting, like, well, if you could write this long letter, what would you most want to tell them? What he most wants to tell them is to make sure they understand what the gospel is. That's great news for us. This, by the way, this letter is written in 57 AD. Nero is on the throne of the Roman Empire. He is the Roman emperor at the time. And Paul is still free. Uh, he's not imprisoned yet. He's still moving around, starting churches, preaching the gospel. So that's when and where we are. That's a map that I'm showing you now of the Roman world in that time. And so Paul has written this letter to the Romans. We started it, we're in our third lesson. So I wanna recap these first four chapters because we're gonna do part of that now. So we did three lessons. The first one was chapter one, verses 16 and 17. So let me read this. This is, by the way, the central thesis of the book, of the letter. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, is being revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, or basically completely by faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now I wanna skip down from chapter one verse 17, to the bottom on this slide, I'm showing you these verses. And so now we're going to sh uh, skip down to chapter 3, verse 21, and you're going to see some bookends. Up here, we're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about the righteousness from God. Now, we're going to skip a big chunk. That's what we talked about last week, and I want you to see the bookends. Think about this as bookends. And so we talk about the righteousness of God being revealed. Listen to chapter 3, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So I'm just drawing on here so you can see, this is kind of bookended. In other words, in chapter 1, verse 17, he begins to talk about, I want to talk to you about this gospel, this righteousness from God, and it comes completely by faith in Jesus Christ. Then he takes a big detour, but it's a necessary detour. And in chapter three, verse 21, he comes back and says, okay, now I wanna, talk, I wanna continue talking to you about this 
righteousness that comes from God. So what we talked about the first week was the gospel. The gospel is simply, that word literally means good news. It's just the announcement. Here's what the gospel is. It's the announcement of some good news about an event that has happened in history. That event is Jesus Christ coming into the world, the Son of God, dying on a cross to bear our sins and being raised from the dead on the third day. That historical event is what the gospel is about. It's the good news. That, is a, that event is good news. I mean, it's actually really good news if you turn to Christ. It's the worst news you could get if you don't, right? And so that is the gospel. And with it comes a righteousness from God. Well, he needs to answer the question, well, why does that matter to me? So that was our first lesson. Second lesson, last week, he's saying, why does that matter? That's still a pertinent question. A lot of people who do not believe, in other words, who do not have faith in Jesus Christ and follow Christ, they might say, okay, well, even if I believe that was a historical event, I mean, everybody believes Jesus lived. Not everybody believes he was raised from the dead, but that's a historical event with witnesses in history. And they said, well, even if I believe that were true, so what? What does that mean to me? Why do I need, why is that good news to me and why do I need that? That was our next lesson. As soon as he says in the gospel, in this good news, this announcement, a righteousness from God is revealed, he immediately goes to verse 18, chapter 1, and begins this. He said, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Well, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, I've left that out, but that whole big middle section Paul is basically going to be a prosecuting attorney. And just to recap what we talked about, he said, listen, the wrath of God is being poured out against sin. There's good news in the gospel. Why is it good news, Paul? Because every single one of us have a terminal problem called sin. He says, first of all, you don't have to know very much to know that there's a God. You can look around and see that. There's even hardwired into us certain behaviors that we know are wrong. I think I cited some psychological studies last time that talked about everybody knows it's wrong to lie. I mean, that just seems something that happens in every culture. Some cultures will say it's okay to lie to some people, but no culture says it's okay to lie to your mom. And so what he's saying is, look, you don't live up to what's even hardwired, even the lowest standard. But then he moves on and he said, well, some people say, but I'm a really moral person. I have a moral code. And Paul says, well, here's my second point. He says, if you were judged by your own moral code, you'd be found guilty. And then finally, the religious people weigh in and say, hey, we do believe in God. And he said, you know what? And you know what God's standard is? It's holiness. And if you're judged by that, you're also found wanting. And so what he's going to say is every one of us have sinned. One really important point that we talked about last time I want to repeat this is, this is going to make the New Testament make so much sense to you. In the New Testament, the idea of sin is, is uh, more complicated than you think. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Sin is a transaction 
meaning you can commit a sin, you can do something sinful or wrong, but sin is also a condition, an attitude, basically, of rebellion against God. And I want to talk about that a little more in a few minutes, but let me give you an example of this. So Laura and I have three sons, and I'm not going to name which son this is that I'm going to talk about. He's real tall, and he sings in the choir, but I am not divulging his name. So when he was little, he had an obedience problem. He was a really strong-willed child, right? And so I remember one time when he had done something he wasn't supposed to do, and this was seriously a, this was a multi-times-a-day kind of an occurrence for him, just really strong-willed guy. And so he had done something wrong. So let's, in, in my metaphor, he had committed a sin, right? He had done a specific thing that was wrong. So Laura spanked him for this. This was serious enough to get a spanking. Spanked him. He turned around and he goes, that didn't hurt. (laughs) Now, that is an attitude of rebellion, right? That's sin in the other way. That's not committing a sin. That's just having an attitude. What do you think was going to happen to him later that day? Oh, yeah, he's going to go commit another infraction, right? So sin is kind of like that. You can commit sin. You can do things that are wrong, but you can also have an attitude of rebellion. And the Bible talks about sin in both of those sentences, in both of those senses. So what Paul's saying last time is he said, no matter who you are, every single one of us has that sin problem. And it's a terminal problem because it's keeping us from being right with God. We also talked about the word righteousness, and I'll talk about it a little bit more. But that idea of being, if you think about it in a courtroom, being righteous is sort of like being not guilty. In other words, like, hey, we're good. There are no outstanding warrants for me. Judge has said, I'm good. That's righteous. Well, that sin is in the way of that happening. In fact, there are warrants out for my arrest, if you will, right? Sin causes us to be separated from God. So that's where we've been. We talked about the righteousness of the gospel. He spends two and a half chapters talking about why that is important and why every single one of us needs to hear this good news. So now, let me talk to you about uh, the idea of the wrath uh, is interesting. I want to recap this because here's why Paul has to talk to us about the wrath of God. He has to talk to us about sin. But Tim Keller puts it very well. He says this, Paul's confidence, joy, and passion for the gospel, the good news about this event that happened, rest on the assumption that all human beings are, apart from this good news, under God's wrath. We are all in rebellion, sinful against God. We don't live up to our moral standards. We certainly don't live up to his holiness. If you don't understand or believe in the wrath of God, the gospel will not thrill you, empower you, or move you. And that is very true. That's why Paul talks about the wrath of God. Because otherwise I'd go, well, okay, maybe that's great news, but what does it mean to me? I don't need Jesus. I don't need this. His point is, is that that kind of gospel, that kind of cheap grace will never thrill me. It will never move me. It will never cause me to follow Jesus with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. So I think Keller gets that right. So once we've talked about this righteousness, this need for it, we come to one of the most 
beautiful passages in all of the New Testament, and it's chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And I want to camp out on this for just a little bit. Martin Luther, or uh, Martin Luther, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that those first two words, but now, are some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Think about where we've come from. We've just spent two and a half chapters talking about we are in a dire situation. And it says this, but now, because of what happened, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify, basically saying the Old Testament predicts this. Prophecy. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. He just got through proving that, right? I'm gonna finish reading this because I want you to see the flow because you're gonna see this whole thing. Remember, this is Paul writing a letter to these new Christians. It all ties together. He says, hey, there's a righteousness from God. He says, and I'm going to tell you why that's really important, because we have a serious problem. He says, but now I want to tell you more about the righteousness, and you know why. He says, because this righteousness from God has been made known, and it comes to all who believe in Jesus Christ. He says, God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. This has implications for the Jews. It's like, think to yourself, what happened about the sins of the Jews beforehand? Those sins were still there and they went unpunished and they too were resolved at the cross. We'll talk more about that in chapters nine through 11 when we talk about uh, predestination. He did it to demonstrate his justice and to be just and the one who justifies. So a lot of, lot of words in there, but one of the things uh, Martin Luther said, well, we don't have that. I'll have to read to you what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther said that little passage I just read, chapter three, verses 21 through 26, that little passage is the chief point and the very central place of this letter and of the whole Bible. If you remember Martin Luther, about it. he was a Catholic priest and he sees these things going on and he begins to read the New Testament. It's when he read the book of Romans and when he got to this paragraph that he realized, oh my goodness, we can't possibly be saved by doing the right things, by trying to measure up, which in the Middle Ages in the Catholic Church, that was the theology. And so he we wanted to break away, protested that. And he said, no, the only way that we can be saved from this problem, this sin problem, this disease, this rebellion that we have is the good news of what Jesus did. And all who trust in him, all who believe in him can be saved. It's not about our works. That's what Martin Luther said. He said, this passage is what made it so obviously clear to him. N.T. Wright puts it this way, and this is where I want to take take a step back for a moment, and I want to connect the gospel, the good news of the event of the cross and the empty grave, to everything God has been doing up to this point. So God has been working all the way up to this point. N.T. Wright says it this way, the covenant with Abraham, now think Abraham's 2000 BC, 2000 years before the cross. The covenant with Abraham 
existed to deal with the problem of fallen humanity. In other words, to deal with this sin problem. In other words, what happened on the cross, that good news of that event, it started all the way back 2,000 years earlier because God said, there is no way my people, my creation, can possibly solve this sin problem. It's not possible for you to solve this on your own. And so God begins this plan to resolve this. So he goes on and he says this, God has been faithful in Jesus the Messiah to the promises made to Abraham, the covenant he established with the Jewish people and through them with all of humanity. So let me take a minute and connect the whole Bible together for a minute because this talking about this righteousness, this rightness with God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, actually faith in what he did, what God did on the cross in the empty grave, that's the good news. That resolves a sin problem that God's been working on for a long time. So I'm going to put up a map that you cannot see. <laughs> However, you have it on your handout. This, this is the map that you have on your handout. I'm sure we'll get these back in a little bit, but that power hit did not help us. Uh, so I want to take you back in time. So follow me with this. We'll go back to the very beginning. So think about Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in the, in the garden have a covenant with God, and God creates them, and it's good. And what does God say to them? He said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to tend to the garden. We're going to live in harmony with one another. You talk about righteousness, meaning right relationship with God. That's just intimate relationship with God. But what happens? What happens is Adam and Eve, they do two things. They commit a sin. He says, you can't eat from this tree. And so they do eat this apple. It doesn't say it's an apple, but I really think it was a gala apple. But anyway, is a, so eat this gala apple, and you think to yourself, now humanity is banished from the garden. Sin has entered the world. Death has entered the world with it. And humanity, it's what we call the fall of humanity, falling out of God's grace, breaking the relationship with God. Sin has separated us. Think about, though, what happened there, because I want to go circle back to this idea of sin. They committed a sin, right? They said, don't do this. They did it. And you might say to yourself, boy, that just seems like a harsh punishment for committing a sin. I mean, it was an apple after all, right? But think about the way the Bible thinks of sin. What actually happened there? What actually happened was they committed a sin, but they became sin. Think about it. The serpent says to Eve, he says, you know what? God told you not to eat that, but you can't trust him because he knows if you do, then you can be like God. So in committing that sin, what are they doing? They're basically saying, hmm, I don't think I trust God. In fact, I think I'd rather be God. I think this story's about me, not about God. And so they've gotten the attitude, right? In other words, there is an attitude of rebellion. It's not just eating the apple. It's not just committing the sin, although that is a sin. It's disobedience. It is the idea of, I now have an attitude of rebellion. I want to be God. And so you see sin in both of its cases. And when we talk about the idea of this universal sin of humanity, that's what we're talking about, is we want to be God. We say it in a lot of different ways. I mean, we're self-centered. 
we treat people poorly, we lie, we cheat, we steal, whatever it is. We've talked about all of us being convicted of sin, but we all have that attitude of rebellion. Well, that's what happened with Adam and Eve. Fast forward a little bit. God realizes humanity, you cannot save ourselves. It's not possible. This disease is terminal. Every one of us, because of sin, is going to go through the door of death, and every single one of us, justice requires that we are all rebels. We have all sinned. If there is a just God, he must deal with that sin. If not, the whole world would cry out. I mean, think about God's justifiable anger at the injustice and murder. and it's, it, God has to be just, or he's not a God worth worshiping. And so we have a problem. Come Abraham. God calls Abraham. You can see on your map, this is just a map of Abraham in 2000 BC. And he's going to go from Babylon, and God's going to tell him, I want you to go to this land I'm going to show you, modern state of Israel, called Canaan at that time. And so he takes that trip that you can see to Canaan. And God makes three promises to him. He said, I'm going to make you into a great nation which God did, made him into a great nation. I mean, he became the Jews. Abraham is the first Jew. And so makes him into a great nation. I'm going to give you a land that's your own, gave him the land of Israel. And he makes this really interesting third promise. He said, and through you, meaning your descendants, I'm going to bless the entire world. And so the covenant with Abraham begins a 2,000-year plan to get to the cross, to basically solve this problem that we cannot deal with. The fall has to do with sin and wrath enters. With Abraham, you get faith. I'm not going to read chapter 4 of Romans, but in chapter 4, Paul's going to retell the story of Abraham. Why is that here? Because the good news of the gospel the cross, the empty grave, started 2,000 years earlier with Abraham to get to the point where justice could be satisfied, but we do not have to be destroyed. And what you see coming together here is really very interesting the way God does this. First of all, justice has to be done. Any of you guys seen that movie, National Treasure? National Tre it's a great, it's an interesting little movie. It's kind of a conspiracy theory type thing, and you've got all these clues, and he finds it. And the guy steals the U.S. Uh, Declaration of Independence and, and all of this stuff, and at the end, the FBI catches him. And in the end, it turns out he's a good guy. Gets the declaration back. He's found this. He's foiled an international plot. I mean, it's great. So the FBI agent and the hero sitting there, and uh, the guy's name is Ben. He said, you know, Ben... You've done good work for your country here. Ben says, man, he said, what, what, would, what can we do for you? He said, well, I'd really like to not go to jail. And the FBI guy says to him, it's the best line in the movie, Ben, somebody's got to go to jail. In other words, laws have been broken and someone has to go to jail. And that's kind of the interesting thing with this is basically you have two things coming together. One is you have every, every sin has to be paid for. Every sin has to be paid for, or God is not just. It's not okay for God to just say, well, never mind, I'll just ignore sin. How is that just to the victims of sin? It's, it's not just at all. God has to be just. Every sin has to be paid for. 
by us or by Jesus. And that's the brilliance of the cross. You get God's wrath at sin, the justice that sin must be destroyed, and God himself comes down and takes our place on the cross. And so you see the wrath of God and the love of God come together in the cross, and justice is satisfied, and we are saved by faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Does that make sense? If you see it that way, you see the wrath of God and the love of God coming together, that he is a just God, and we do deserve death, but he himself stepped in in our place. And so by faith in that, we can live. That's the story of the good news of the gospel. That's why the wrath of God is, is important. That's why the love of God, which hasn't shown up yet. Next week, the love of God will show up. But right now he's talking about this righteousness that God himself stepped down from the judge's bench and went to the cross on our behalf. And that satisfies the justice of God. Okay? So that kind of ties the covenants together and gets us there. And then there's another really key idea I want to get into, but let's stop for a moment here and see what questions we have. Well, the question is, wondering why God chose to take 2,000 years to begin redeeming us. 2,000 years to what? I'm to sorry. To begin his redeeming work. Oh, why does it take 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus to do this? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, uh, we've already had one demonstration of wrath. I mean, if you want to ask God, like, hey, what took so long? Fine with me. No, seriously. This, I, I've, got a, I've got a really good answer to this. It's, it's just really a great way to think about it. I'm going to give you the really, really short version, okay? Here's the short version. You have humanity has fallen into sin. We are idolaters. We are worshiping ourselves and anything and everything. And still, that's still true today. And so we're caught in this idolatry. We are, here's the theological word for this. And it doesn't matter if you're a Calvinist or you're a Wesleyan or anybody else. Thank you, gentlemen. Anybody else, everybody agrees on this. We are depraved. The depravity of man. Now, don't, I don't want you to understand that in the way we usually mean depraved, as in, oh, we do awful things. Well, we do, but the depravity of man as a theological idea means this. We are caught in sin, and we cannot get out by ourselves, meaning we don't have the ability to stop sinning. Everybody believes that true. It's, it's the biblical idea, and you can see the evidence all around you. So God begins a process of bringing humanity along, and the way I like to explain it is this. Think about you have a two-year-old, and the two-year-old is, they're just, they're just little sinners. I mean, that's really about all I can tell you, is they're just little sinners without the capability. This is a metaphor, people. I'm not calling your two-year-old a sinner, but though they are, but anyway. They don't have the capability to stop disobeying, do they? Well, they're two years old. And yet through time as they grow up, you begin to teach them different things and you begin to teach their heart. And for a while you have a lot of rules, don't you? But then later in the teen years, you don't have so many rules, you have principles because you want them to learn to behave well in any circumstance. I'd like you to think about all that time that God was working through Abraham and Moses and David to get to the cross, 
that was a necessary period of the time. Paul is going to say this in the book of Galatians, in the other, another letter. He's going to say the law of Moses, all those rules. That was a school teacher to bring us to Christ. So I'll stop there and say I think the reason is that God had that plan is it took us as humanity that long to grow up, to be able to have faith and put our trust in Christ. So that's the short version of that. Not all that short, but it's still a short version of that. Okay? Well, let me go on because I want to talk about, now that we have our screens back, thank you so much. Let's dive into this for a second. I want to, 321 to 26, I want to stay camped out on this for a couple minutes. I want to talk about some of the terms here. So we've talked about righteousness, but now a righteousness from God. I'm underlining that because I want to tell you that righteousness is the same word. I think I put this on your handout, but basically in Greek, this is written in Greek, Righteous, righteousness, just, justify, justification are all basically the same word. They're called cognates. They're just a little different form, but they're the same word. We have different English words that we translate it, but I want you to understand when we say righteousness, it means being just. Justification is the process of becoming righteous. You can think of it in two ways. Think of righteousness legally. Like I've said before, it's a very legal term in Greek, and that is that I am righteous. You tend to think of righteousness as I behave really well. Righteousness actually is talking about my status. I would be righteous or justified, all the same word in Greek, if I went before the judge and he said, I pulled you up on the computer, you have no warrants outstanding, you don't have any traffic tickets, and I find you not guilty, you're good with the law. In other words, the legal system of the United States has no issue with you, we're good. Kind of think of it in that way. That's righteous, but you could also think of it in a relational way, because in the ancient world they thought of it this way too. You can, I would like you to think about being a righteous husband. A righteous husband, again, doesn't mean so much your behavior as it is your relational wholeness. In other words, if your wife is mad at you, you are unrighteous. Now, you see what I'm saying? There's a relational component. So righteousness is basically legal. Somebody's got to take care of my sin problem here. That's a big legal problem. But it's also relational because sin separates me from God. I've done serious relational damage. So think of righteousness in those ways. Next word. I want to talk to you about this word uh, faith. The righteousness, this righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. In Greek, the word faith, belief, and trust are exactly the same word. We just change it in English. You could translate that sentence, the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who have faith. It's exactly the same word. I like the word trust, and you'll see me use that trust as a translation, and I'll tell you why. It's merely a better English word. We tend to think of believe as, well, I hold an opinion. Not a very compelling thing to me. It doesn't necessarily affect my actions. I just happen to believe that, you know, we're, that OSU's gonna win this weekend, or that this is gonna happen, or I believe that this and this. It doesn't, not a lot there. Sometimes we say, well, I have faith right, that this is going to happen. Well, that's a little stronger word, isn't it? It means like, no, I really believe this is going to happen, right? 
But when we say trust, that English word implies, oh, you trust this. That means you're going to act, you're actually going to act in a way that means I'm counting on this to be true. Does that make sense? Trust is a better word to capture what the New Testament is talking about. I'm not criticizing the translations. I just want us to have this mental picture that whenever it says faith or believe, when you say that, whoever believes in Christ, okay, I believe in Christ. No, that's an intellectual assent. James, in the letter that James wrote later in the New Testament, he's going to say, even the demons believe Right? Even the demons acknowledge, yeah, Jesus is God, but they're not saved. And he's going to say, can that kind of faith save you? So what I want you to think about when you see believe or faith, I want you to think about trust, meaning I'm willing to act on that. I'm so counting on that that I'll actually act on that. And if it isn't true, I'm in trouble. So think about faith, belief. Think about that as trust. Uh, redemption. We are justified... Justified is the same word as righteous. In other words, we've been made right with God, both legally and relationally, freely, by his grace, meaning an unmerited gift. It's just what he's given to us through the redemption that came from Christ. What is redemption? Redemption in the ancient world, this Greek word, is uh, it's not a, none of these words are like Christian-y words. They all mean a concrete thing. The word redemption means paying a ransom. That Greek word is used. For example, Julius Caesar, when he was young, he was kidnapped by a bunch of pirates. Very popular thing to do. They boarded the ship. They said, who on here is well-born? Julius Caesar, oh, you're dressed nice. I'll bet somebody will pay money to get you back. So they capture him, take him back, take good care of him. He's such an arrogant little guy. He says, you know, they said, listen, we're going to go ask for one talent of gold. He said, that's not nearly enough. He said, you need to ask for more. I'm worth more than that. You need to ask for 10 talents of gold. And they're like, whoa, okay. And so they send a letter and say, if you want to see him again, you better pay us 10 talents of gold. Long story short, they pay the 10 talents of gold. And they redeem him, meaning I'm paying you the ransom now, give him back. You were, he was captive, but now he's not. And before he leaves, he says this, enjoy that money because I'm going to come back one day and crucify every single one of you. And sure enough, he did. After he got an army and grew up a little bit, and before he becomes emperor, he goes out and he hunts those pirates down. He crucified every one of them. So that's kind of a gruesome story, but you get the idea of redemption, right? Redemption is I'm captive and you paid a ransom. That's what that word is perfect to talk about what Jesus did. We were captive to sin, meaning we're stuck. We have a sin problem, we have a sin attitude, we got sins that we're doing, and we can't fix it. We can't do it on our own. We are slaves to sin or captive to sin. Jesus, in the good news, what he did, coming to the cross, paying the price, he paid a ransom. He said, their bill, I'll pay it. Redemption, that's what that means, a ransom was paid. He said, so, we are justified, we're made right with God, how? because Jesus paid a ransom so that we could be removed from the power of sin. So these terms, I just want you to, to feel like you're comfortable with these terms because they sound really religious. They weren't originally. They have just really fundamental ideas. I want you to think about being right before the judge, being right relationally with God. That's righteousness. That's justification. I want you to think about faith as trust, 
Putting faith in something means I trust that so much, I'm going to act as though it's true. I just, you won't convince me differently. If I trusted that I could fly, I'd jump off of a mountain. In other words, trust. I want you to think about that. And then I want you to think about this idea of sin as a condition that we have that we could not fix on our own. And so that's what 321 through 26 is doing. Now, here's probably the most important point of this entire lesson. This is going to change the way you think about your life and the way you think about yourself. What I'm about to tell you is true. Think about this story. What has Paul said? He said, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, what does that mean? It means I trust what he did. I trust that he paid my price and he was raised from the dead. I am following him. Lord, what can I do? I love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I am yours, right? I trust you completely. You just tell me what to do and I'll do it because I trust you completely. So if I've done that, what is Paul saying? He said, my sin problem is gone. We in Christianese would call it, I've been saved, right? In other words, my sin problem is gone. I am right before God, both relationally and legally. There is no debt that I owe. I'm free. Here's the problem. Several of you are going to say to me, and I know this because I feel this too, I don't always feel worthy. I don't always feel like that's true. And notice, this passage doesn't say anything about how you feel. This passage is very objective truth. What Jesus is saying, do you believe this is true? Do you believe that what I did wiped away your sins? Do you trust me? Will you follow me to heaven? Will you turn away from, oh, I'm not. I'm not. This is what Adam and Eve said. No, I don't. I trust me. I don't trust you. But if you trust me, then this is true. The gospel is true. I don't believe the gospel because I feel good about it. I mean, that's part of it. God wants to engage my mind, my heart, my hands. I'm not saying that feelings don't matter. What I'm saying is, this is true whether I feel it or not. And I really want you to think about that. Because there are going to be days you get up and you're going to go, you know what, I have not lived in a manner worthy of this Jesus that I trust. That's true. We're going to talk about that in chapter 6. How can you be Christian and still commit sins? We'll get to that. But for now, I understand there are times we don't feel worthy. It's like, I, I just don't know. I don't feel like I'm worthy. This passage doesn't talk about that at all, does it? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to let the truth that you know in your head because you believe this is the inspired word of God, and I want you to let that inform how you feel, not the other way around. Paul says, God says, the Holy Spirit says, that is true. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are free. And you might say, I know, but I just don't act the way I should. I was harsh. I was unloving. I wasn't compassionate. And God says, I know. And yet this is still true. Does that make sense to you guys? That is a powerful idea. Powerful idea. That it isn't about how I feel. It isn't about how I performed yesterday. This is objectively true. It's all about, what he says is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace, by his free gift to us of what he did on the cross, through trust. 
through faith. Powerful idea. I'd like you to think about it because it'll make a difference. On those days when you don't feel like you're a good Christian, you don't feel worthy of God, I want you to rejoice and go, I know, isn't it amazing? And yet it is true that my God has declared me right before him. He loves me. We are in good relationship despite the fact that I don't feel worthy. I want you to talk to yourself. I want you to preach to yourself. That is true. And it should inform our feelings, not the other way around. Don't get on that roller coaster. Oh, I feel close to God today. Oh, I don't feel close to God today because I wasn't very good. Well, better tomorrow. I feel better. That's the roller coaster and there's no joy. There's no peace in that. There's peace in knowing this is true, whether you feel it or not. One more passage. I'm going to skip forward to uh, chapter 4. So I'm going right to the end. So he starts with this beautiful passage about this is where your righteousness comes from, is from your trust in Jesus Christ. And then he's going to talk about Abraham, and he's going to say, hey, this all started back with Abraham. And what did God ask Abraham to do? Trust me. Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God. And God said, that's righteousness. That's all I require of you is you trust me. And he did. He got up and he took off. He didn't just believe. He actually got up and did what God told him to do. So he goes about Abraham and he ends this way. This is an interesting little passage at the end. He says, listen to what Abraham did because this is us. This is what God, this is who we are. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed he trusted, and so he became the father of many nations, just as God had said, your offspring are going to be huge. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He's too old to have children. He was about 100 years old, and that Sarah, his wife, had not been able to have children. And yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. But he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded, verse 21, this is trust, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. He says, that wasn't true just for Abraham, that is true for us, verse 24, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe, trust, in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, and was raised to life for our justification, our righteousness. We're saying just what we've been talking about. This gospel event, this event, the gospel is the good news. He was delivered over for the sake of justice to pay our price, and he's raised to, from the dead so that now we are right with God. That's the gospel. That's true. If you trust God, that's true, regardless of what you may feel about it at any given time. It's the beautiful blending of the wrath of God and the love of God coming together at the cross. And God's wrath, God's justice being satisfied because of him stepping down from heaven. I mean, Philippians 2, the whole New Testament is going to tie together. When you get this idea, anywhere you read, you're going to go, oh yeah, that makes sense, that's part of this. Philippians 2 talks about Jesus. He said, I want you to have the same mind that Jesus had. Even though he was God, he didn't consider holding on to that. Instead, he emptied himself and became, humbled himself and took on the form of a human being. In other words, God becomes human. Not only that, Philippians chapter 2 says he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so he was obedient to God's plan because it was the only way 
for justice to be satisfied and us to be saved. Everywhere you read in the New Testament, this is all gonna fit together. And I really passionately want you to see that. You're like, we get it, Terry, you can move on. Okay, so we're moving on. I wanna close uh, this part with this quote from Tim Keller. This is really interesting. Let's step back now. What I just told you, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, of what Jesus Christ did, being raised from the dead, and how we are right with God because we place our trust in him. It's called the gospel. We just wrap that all up and call it the gospel, right? He says, no other place offers this outside of the gospel. I mean, outside of this belief, he said, we must develop a righteousness and offer it to God and say, hopefully and anxiously, accept me. What he's saying is every other religion, every other ideology, every other philosophy of life, not just religions, I'm talking about materialism, I'm, call, I'm talking about secular humanism, all of them say, you need to meet this code of conduct. Some of them don't have a God, some of them do. But in order to be accepted, in order to be righteous in a right relationship, being in the right place in our society, look around, watch social media. This is so true of people, Christian or not. You have to believe the right things. You better do the right things. You better say the right things. That's true in every other religion. He says this, the gospel doesn't say you better develop your righteousness, you better get your act together and hope that you're acceptable to the culture or to a God. The gospel says that God developed righteousness. In other words, if you stop and think about it, the only person who's ever actually lived up to the standard, which God calls holiness, is Jesus. That's why only Jesus could die on that cross. The only one who could step up and say, I'm free, and God would say, yes, you are. You are sinless. He says, then I'm the only one who can take theirs on and pay the price. God developed the righteousness for us. We didn't do anything. We were incapable of doing anything. And he offers it to us, and by it we are accepted. This is the uniqueness of the Christian gospel, and it actually turns upside down every other religion and worldview and even our very hearts. We think we need to measure up. I ought to measure up. In other words, if I'm going to be right with God, I ought to measure up. Even our heart is, tells us that we need to do that. And God says, no, you can't. And you know what? I have fashioned a way for you to be right with me. You can't and don't have to fashion your righteousness. Christianity is the only belief system, the only ideology, the only religion, the only belief system that has righteousness that is something that God did for us and gave to us instead of us trying to live up to it. That's important to us for a lot of reasons. One is, that's why this is good news. The gospel is spreading in the world. Read a lot of books a few years ago about uh, basically religion is dead as our society becomes more secular, which is true, that religion will fade away, that God will become less and less and less apart. Actually, when you look at the data, it is just the opposite of that. The world is actually becoming more religious as secularism becomes more powerful. Why is that? This is why that is. The gospel is unique. It's good news. If you've been spending your life trying to measure up, 
fit in, be good enough. The gospel is good news to you. That's why don't ever despair about this world. Don't ever despair about how lost our world seems to be because there's power in what God did on the cross. There's power in the word of God that is going to fill a God-shaped hole in everybody's heart. So be encouraged. Christianity is unique in the world. What you believe and what God offers, no other religion can offer. Nobody else is going to be able to offer peace like that. So I hope this is helpful. Let me recap this a little bit because now we're going to turn in our next lesson and we're going to say, first he said, there's righteousness from God. Second lesson, let me tell you why that's important. We have a terminal sin problem here, people. And then today he has this beautiful passage that brings it all together and says, God's been working on this for a long time and he made a way for you to be right through trust in Christ, not through anything you do, not through being good enough. And so he's explained the gospel. Next time he's going to turn and he's going to say, let me tell you what some of the consequences of this are. Given that that is true, let me tell you some of the things that, that happen as a result of that. And that is fascinating. But I want you to see how this ties together. This is the gospel. And now we're going to start talking about what are the implications of it. So this may seem like a big, uh, a really big claim. But next time, chapter five, you are gonna find the cure for anxiety, world peace, and undying love. How's that for a hook? <laughs> and it's true, and you can find out next week. See you then. <laughs>